Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 47 with Amanda Palmer of the Founder Podcast. Discover exactly what it takes to become a successful entrepreneur and what's possible through entrepreneurship from the greatest minds in business today. Welcome to the Founder Podcast. Here's your host, Nathan Chan. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the last episode with Seth. Like I said, we're just getting warmed up. I've got so many more epic guests coming your way. And today is another one. The one and only Amanda Palmer. Now, uh, she's a, a really, really fascinating artist, creative, entrepreneur, musician. And I just had to get her on the show and, and in the magazine because she is a very, very unique and interesting human being. And I watched her TED Talk, The Art of Asking, and that's one thing that I highly, highly, highly recommend you do, guys, is after you listen to this interview, go and watch Amanda's TED Talk, The Art of Asking. And she wrote a book based off this TED Talk, and it's a brilliant book, one of the best books uh, that I've read in a while. And pretty much she goes in depth on what it means to make yourself vulnerable and why people just don't ask and they're why they're scared and what holds them back and what that fear is and uh, we talk about all sorts of really really interesting things so if you haven't heard of Amanda she doesn't really need an introduction because she's got such a fascinating story and I know or I hope a lot of you have heard of her, but uh, that's it from me, guys. I'm just going to let you roll with this one. This is awesome. So if you are enjoying these interviews, please do take the time to leave us a review. Check out the magazine. It's the fruits of our labor. If you like these interviews, I know you love the magazine. Um, if you do have any feedback, I'd love to hear from you either way. You can reach me at Nathan at foundermag.com. Now let's jump into the show. Can you tell us about how you got your job? Which one? The one as a dominatrix? Well, <laughs> this guy in a strip club introduced me to this woman. No, no. Uh, your job right now. <laughs> I, I'm still not sure which one you mean. Book writing? Music making? Music uh, making. What you, the what whole most, thing? Yeah, the, the whole, whole thing. The whole shebang. God, I don't even know how to answer that question because I've got – I do so many things. I think the – the the best answer I can give you is nobody hires you. <laughs> like, when you're when you're a musician and a performer and a writer, you uh, you know you don't ever apply for the job. You fucking do the job, and you hope that you get paid, and you hope that people you know at least hire you for a gig. It's also the lovely thing about being a performer and a and an artist is that you know your boss can't come in and fire you, so. You know, I've I've built my career very strange bit by bit from from day one. 
Hmm. Now, um, I really want to talk to you about your latest book, but before I delve into that, I just have a random kind of question. Uh, can you tell us about your family? What's that been like, you know, your whole career and, and uh, how supportive of, of you have they been? Well, that is a, that's a pretty complicated question because, you know, it depends which family you mean. You, you probably mean my, my, my immediate uh, nuclear type, which is my, my mom and my stepdad and my sister, who are the ones I, I shared a bathroom with growing up. And they have, on the whole, been insanely supportive. I've come to under I've, I've come to understand it and explain it to people as you know. There's a real, you know, there's a little bit of a divide because they don't necessarily understand what I'm doing all the time. But even when they don't understand it, they're kind of proud of it because they know I'm doing something. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I didn't come from an artistic family. I came from a a pretty stable, loving family, but certainly, you know, there was very rarely music playing in the house. It was a very intellectual, very quiet sort of classic New England, you know, democratic, liberal, you know, suburban upbringing. And I look as an adult now who's almost 40, you know, I, I see... I see my roots clearly and I definitely see my similarities with my parents. But I also, you know, I also see some real marked differences and, you know, a whole different set of choices that I made to to go into a career in the arts and to, you know, to spend my life traveling instead of buying a house and, you know, getting a car in a garage and all that kind of stuff. So on the whole, and I, I'm friends with a lot of artists and, mm. you know, we, we do tend to sometimes have really fraught relationships with our families, um, especially if we've decided to do our lives, not by the book, they can have a really tough time understanding why we would make the choices that we make when they aren't the choices that they made, whether it is, you know, the decision to not settle down and do a family or the decision to, you know, travel nonstop and live in one place or whatever it is. But, you know, un underneath it all, my family has been generally really supportive um, compared to what they could have been. You know, I have friends whose families have full on disowned them for being gay and just pretty much disowned them for their lifestyles. And I thank my lucky stars that I do not fall into that category. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, I always, I always kind of like to ask that question, just to open things up. So, you you wrote your book, The Art of Asking, and it was just delving deeper on your TED Talk. I, I loved your TED Talk. It really captured me. I've been following your work for quite some time now. For our audience that are listening, can you just give us a little bit of a, a walkthrough of the main message behind your book and what people will get out of it? Well, um, that's, I mean, the TED Talk was about um, sort of connecting the dots between my experience as a street performer and then my experience as a as a musician asking for help and ultimately crowdfunding and using Kickstarter and you know having having built a real connection and community with my fans through the act of asking them for stuff like asking them for food and asking them for places to crash and asking them to help my band um, you know and that all culminated in a really successful Kickstarter. But I also, you know, I saw a resonance back to my life as a street performer where you you stand there and you give your art away for free and hope that the 
sliver of humanity that 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 wants to support you will sort of be consistently generous as they pass you on the street and it does work and i know it works cuz i stood there for 5 years and i did it and you know any any busker who's made a living as a busker knows that there is a you kind of have to you know you have to jump and hope that the net will catch you but it you know if you're a good busker it really does there is a consistent portion of the population who want to help artists and who will who will reward you if you if you put yourself out there and i was really passionate about that especially you know, and I can I can be sort of weirdly grateful that I ran into controversy with my Kickstarter because I found myself having to explain this philosophy over and over again to people who were like, but Kickstarter's bullshit. It's just panhandling and you're just begging people for money. And I was like, I just don't get it. I don't get what's the difference between Madonna asking you to go in and buy a CD for 20 bucks and me asking you to pre-order one for 20 bucks. I'm not really sure I understand why one is bad and one is good. Mm. Um so I, you know, I, I was spending so much time explaining myself to people and explaining Kickstarter to people, the invitation to go explain it all at once in one big go on, at, you know, on the TED stage was a real, was a real gift. And then when, when the TED talk did well, I was offered a book deal and I took it because there was a lot I had to leave out of the TED talk, uh, namely my own struggles with asking and my own experiences and my own relationships, you know, all of which were were related to the topic, but certainly weren't fitable inable to it to a twelve minute talk. There's a passage from your book that I'd just like to quote to our audience and, and just discuss with you because I found it really, really powerful. Often it is our own sense that we are, we are undeserving of help that has immobilized us, whether it's in the arts, at work, or in relationships. We often resist asking not only because we're afraid of rejection, but also we don't think we deserve what we're asking for. And there was another piece, the fear of being vulnerable, the fear of rejection, the fear of looking needy or weak. And I, and I found that really powerful and it really hit home for me especially because you know our our audiences are entrepreneurs aspiring and, and early stage entrepreneurs and I felt that as entrepreneurs you always you always have to show up and put yourself out there and ask for help and for me personally I realized that that's actually something I've personally never been afraid of it's something that's come quite natural to me but why do you, why do you think that that we are so afraid to ask well I mean the the fear is i think just directly tied into what the rejection represents which is what no human being ever wants to feel which is unworthy of love <laughs> i mean it really does it may sound hokey but that's pretty much what it boils down to you know every entrepreneur i know and you know most of the good artists i know are also entrepreneurs mm. they learn you know, not even necessarily to have a thick skin, but to just that sense of perseverance and the kind of relentless optimism or or even feigned optimism <laughs> that you know you have to have to convince somebody to to join your cause. There's an extreme parallel between startup companies and and startup bands because pretty much every band starts as a startup unless they're, you know, put together by Simon Cowell and just like sent right to the billboard charts. But, you know, your confidence in your own band 
and your confidence in your own company, it's kind of the same thing. There's a real difference between saying, well, you know, I have this startup and we're, we're doing some interesting stuff. You may, I don't know if it's really your thing, but if you would consider funding us, uh, maybe you can, you know, there's a difference between that and I have a startup that's going to change the world. You need to come in and talk to us. Mm. which is basically the difference between saying, yeah, I'm in a band. It might not really be your sort of thing, but we, we have a show on Thursday, but it's at this shitty club and saying, I'm in a band. I love my band. You should fucking come to our show. It's going to be amazing. And it's on Thursday. One makes you want to help and one makes you not really care. And it, it's not just in the sales pitch, but it is in your own belief that you are in the best band in the world and that your startup company really is going to change the planet. And without the combination of the belief in the thing and the ability to communicate your belief in that thing is sort of the difference between sinking and swimming. At what moment did you know that what you do was going to become big or, or that you knew that things were going to be okay? That's an interesting, it's an interesting question because it, you know, in one sense, I, I was armed with that relentless optimism from day one, like from the time I was 12, mm. you know, looking at my Cindy Lauper records and going, I am going to do that job. Like there is no, there is no, I will accept no compromises. I'm going to be a rock star and that's that. And I have no idea how to do it and how one does it. But, you know, I know I'm going to write songs and I'm going to perform on stage and that's that. And it's just a matter of time. Um, and I really did believe that. I like, had an insane amount of self-confidence that eventually I would figure it out. But then there was also the reality of it, which was really learning to be a good songwriter, learning to overcome stage fright, learning to hone my chops as a musician and learn the basics of touring and gear and what you do and don't do. And there was definitely a point with the Dresden Dolls, which was my first band, where, you know, and it didn't take long. The two of us found each other and we we realized that our piano and drums duo had a had a magical combination. We didn't need any other instruments. And we just kind of knew after playing ten or twelve shows with each other and watching the reaction of the audience we looked at each other and said, we love this band and we are going to do whatever it takes to take this band to the next level. And you know, we barely needed to say it because it was palpable in the room. We passionately loved playing this music with each other and people passionately loved watching us do it. Can you describe to us the feeling of the first time, I guess, you asked for help and, and that moment? <laughs> well... First time I asked and failed, or the first time I asked and it worked. <laughs> Let's go with both. I, I just like to really delve deep on that and that feeling that you got. Well, this is going to get really dark really fast because the first, the first time I remember asking for help was my first memory in life. I was three, mm. <laughs> and I had, I was this teeny weeny. I had toppled down the stairs of. Um, my folks' first house, the one that I, you know, grew up in until I was about four or five. And I, I, I did that sort of cartoon thing where I slipped at the top of the stairs and I fell all the way down. 
but I was three and I was pretty roly poly and I wasn't actually, (laughs) I didn't break anything. I was just really shocked. You know, I had the wind knocked out of me. I was kind of banged up, but nothing was really, nothing was really broken. And I was so stunned at what had happened. And it felt so epic. <laughs> like This fall from the, fir- from the second floor to the first floor was so like, his- it felt so historic. And I was crying and I went into, I went into the kitchen where I don't even remember who was there, but you know, I was the baby of the family. So it was like the rest of everyone. And I went in there like really expecting, I, I expect, I don't know what I expected, but I was asking for sympathy and I was asking for understanding that this huge thing had just happened. And I just remember being completely ignored. <laughs> and for the first time in my existence, just feeling like utterly unloved and misunderstood. And, you know, that was the moment where I was like, yeah, humanity, not for me. I'm turning my back on all of you. I'm starting my own band. And... But also, I, I think that the fact that that was my first memory in life, it's also so significant that that's what, you know, my little brain at 10 or 15 or whenever that sort of gelled as my first memory. Mm. It's just so tellingly significant about who I was and what I became. You know, this very loud, aggressive artist who, who just ass- insisted on being listened to and believed. (laughs) And, you know, and I also, I remember asking for, you know, asking for help in, in other forms. My sophomore year of school, when I was about 15, I sort of looked around, I was kind of a miserable, depressive, angsty type as a teenager, as many of us were. And I, I looked around like the, you know, the second or third day of school in 10th grade. And I was just, unhappy with everything and everyone hated my classmates thought my teachers were stupid didn't understand why I was being forced to learn the stuff that I wasn't interested in and I I just withdrew from school I just took myself out I literally like put my backpack on and walked out and went to the library and decided that I was going to educate myself (laughs) and you know it was sort of that was the my the point in life where I realized, you know, if I was going to get what I wanted, if I was going to sort of be master of my own fate, I was going to have to be creative. And I was going to have to sort of look at the universe as flexible and plastic. And I wound up, it actually wound up really turning out beautifully. I struck a deal. You know, my parents withstood this for about a week and then absolutely blew their tops and marched me into the school guidance counselor and said, what are we going to do with her? She won't go to school. And I wound up negotiating a deal with my guidance counselor where I could drop out of all the classes that I hated most. So I dropped out, I dropped out of math, history and science. (laughs) (laughs) And I, and I kept Latin, English and French. (laughs) And that was my sophomore year. I took Latin, English, French, art and gym, and then made up those classes in summer school and sort of suffered compacted all of the suffering into three weeks. But, you know, I, I, I asked like, can I do this? Can I do this? Well, what if I do this? Can I do this? Can I get away with this? Cause otherwise I'll just drop out. You know, I was like a, you know, little like marketing and PR expert at, at 15, just trying to figure out like what I could trade for what, you know, and I realized the rules were flexible, but I actually had to put my hand up and make the demand. 
Mm, I love that. Look, uh, we have to work towards wrapping up. One last question, and that's around Mm -hmm. community building and building that connection. Mm -hmm. That's something, as an artist, you are are really, really good at, and you, you are creating a movement that changes the way artists should you know, build, grow, and maintain an audience. So mm. what advice would you give around, you know, a couple of pieces around building your community and keeping that connection and developing it over time and building that trust? I mean, there's a lot of sort of nitty-gritty, nerdy ways to do it, but the overarching rule is communicating authentically. And I think a lot of companies get this wrong and a lot of bands get this wrong. They think that there is a, an authoritative voice that is like the believable voice that a company would speak into or a band would speak in. And I think they miss the fact that a human voice and an authentic voice is so much more desirable if you're trying to be heard and you're trying to create and maintain a relationship. I learned this in the beginning of my band days when I, I assumed that my band would be more impressive if everything about us on our website was written in the third person. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, as if some magical record label or marketing strategist was like, the Dresden dolls were formed in (laughs) instead of just saying like, Hey, it's Amanda. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, there's a real, there's a real gold in being authentically human. And you know, a lot of companies clearly in the last 10, 20 years are really starting to understand this and are peeling away the curtain of, you know, corporate bullshittiness and just saying like, hi, actually our company is three people. It's me, Nikki and Steve. Here we are. Here's a picture of us in our office. We're not a giant corporate headquarters. We're actually a little grassroots, blah, blah, blah. But by doing that, you endear yourself to people because people like honesty and so many so much time and energy and bullshit could be saved if you remember the golden rule that people, they will respond to marketing ploys, yes, and they will respond to, you know, cats on skateboards. And yes, people are manipulatable, especially if we are to build an authentic universe and a, you know, and a sustainable planet where people are honest with each other and really take care of each other. At our core, we really like honesty. And we really respond fundamentally positively to people being honest and honest, you know, honesty can come in a lot of packages, but, you know, I think if I were starting up my own company, I think that would be, you know, that would be my core principle is communicate authentically. Don't try to bullshit your way into or out of a situation. Assume that honesty is the best policy. Awesome. All right. Well, look, we'll we'll wrap there, Amanda. But thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I could I could talk to you all day. <laughs> same same year. Nice to talk to you. Awesome. The Founder Podcast has come to a close, but it's not time to sleep. It's time to hustle. Download the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine for free right now by visiting foundermag.com slash Branson. Again, that's an absolutely free download of the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine containing an exclusive interview with the man himself. It's only available at foundermag.com slash Branson. So download it now and we'll see you next time on the Founder Podcast.